Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. We're going to look in the second part of majoring on the minors, on the minor prophets, and look at the last six of the minor prophets as we continue our journey down Route 66 and going through all 66 books of the Bible in just a matter of weeks. And so uh, you've got a lot of notes there in front of you, and I won't take time to be redundant with a lot of that. But I want to ask you a question. Where are the people, where are the preachers, and where are the churches that are willing to be like the prophets, to say what God says, whether it is politically correct or not, to speak with boldness, to speak without any fear of man or the consequences. Where are the churches? Where are the preachers? I'm not talking about our petty little side things that we get in denominations and some of I'm talking about the essentials of Christ as being the one, the essentials of the fact that he is coming again, that he was virgin born, sinless, died, rose from the grave. Where where are the voices? that are speaking that. We have a lot of voices that are speaking about uh, faith and healing, and we have people speaking about prosperity, but where are the voices that in one accord are saying, God has something to say to this nation? This nation that has violated principles, and now we have people writing books that say the founding fathers had no reference to deity or to God in their founding. You, you cannot ignore, no matter how uncomfortable it makes you, you cannot ignore the founding of this country and the faith of many of the founding fathers. And if not faith, at least the acknowledgement that there is a God who rules over this earth that must be honored. At least that. The question is asked in the scripture, where is where the Elijahs, where's the God of Elijah? But my question would be, where are the Elijahs of God? It's not that God is absent. It's not that God is helpless. It's that he looks down and I think he finds a church that is found it very popular to be vague and to be fearful of saying, this is what God says. And so I want us to look at these last six minor prophets who had no problem speaking the truth, even though the truth was not comfortable to receive. Now, let me ask you something. When you go to a doctor, do you want the truth or do you want him to lie to you? Good news or bad news? You want the truth, don't you? You don't want, it, you don't want, to know, you don't want him to know you've got weeks to live and him tell you, you're fine, go do whatever you want to do. You want a doctor to tell you the truth. You want a politician to tell you the truth. Now, there's an oxymoron. <laughs> if I am elected, I will. <laughs> and you could just put lie at the end of that sentence. If I am elected, I will lie to you about what I said when you voted for me. But of all places, the pulpit should be the place where people tell the truth. Without apology, without reservation, without hesitation. And so as we look at these, we look first of all at Naaman. Naaman speaks against Nineveh. His name means consolation or comfort. But his language is very strong 
There's a staccato to the, the way he writes this book. It's rapid fire. His theme is the destruction of Nineveh. This is about 100 to 150 years after Jonah, and Nineveh has returned to idolatry and to violence. And so Naaman is really a sequel to the book of Jonah, and he prophesied in chapter 1, verse 8, that Nineveh would be destroyed with an overflowing flood. In fact, that flood did destroy Nineveh because it knocked down its walls and the enemies were able to come in and take over the land. And we hear nothing else of Nineveh until the 1840s when archaeologists uncovered it. The outline of the book is very simple. It's two points. There's the judge in chapters 1, verses 1 through 7. And then there's the judgment. The judge will bring judgment. The judgment, chapter 1, verse 8 through chapter 3 and verse 19. When you look at the book, you find that there are key words, and they primarily are doom and vengeance. This is not a happy book. This is not a book you want to read when you're looking for something to feel good. Because he proclaims that doom and God's vengeance is coming upon the land because they have rejected God. He talks about the first coming and the second coming in this book. In the first coming, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. That's verse seven. With the second coming, he says, that same Lord will bring judgment, vengeance on his adversaries. That's verse two. The two key doctrines of God's judgment and God's mercy are pictured together. And and you see here in chapter one, the picture of the majesty and power of God. That there should be no mistake that there is majesty and power with God. There should be a slide up. Thank you. Secondly, it describes the destruction of Nineveh. The destruction of Nineveh. There is a clear prophecy that Nineveh will be destroyed. And then thirdly, it gives us the reasons for Nineveh's fall. They're going to be humiliated is what God says through his prophet. This nation that has thumbed its nose at God and at God's people will be humiliated. I believe that word has, well, it's a word for today. You thumb your nose at God and God's people and there will be humiliation. Maybe not in our lifetime, but God will balance the books at the end of time. So what are the truths to learn from this book? First of all, God is gracious and patient. See, I wouldn't be gracious and patient with people that were mistreating my family. I wouldn't be gracious and patient at all. And people have mistreated God's people through the ages, the Jews and the church. But God is gracious and he is patient. He gives people time to repent. Secondly, God is just. God is just. He is no man's debtor. He is going to act justly. He will act without partiality. God is just in the way he judges. He's not unfair or unkind. He gives the judgment that is due when he judges. Secondly, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. We have been blessed. In fact, uh, I I believe if if people in dead churches and dying churches and, and carnal churches and liberal churches had heard as much powerful preaching as this church has heard in its history through guest preachers and through the pastors that have served this church, they would have repented by now. We are responsible for what we've heard. 
It's not enough to just sit and take notes. We are responsible for the word that is given to us from the pulpit, and we need to respond to it appropriately. Number four, what God says, he does. God doesn't say something and then change his mind. What God says, he does. And the last thing, God's spirit will not always strive with man. God's spirit will not always strive with man. Now we come to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk means the just shall live by faith. That is the message. He was possibly a musician in the temple. His name means embracer. The key words in Habakkuk are why and woe. Not woe like stop with a horse, but woe. Why? Habakkuk is asking questions. Judah is immersed in apostasy and the the last three kings of Israel have been evil and apostate and idolatrous. And so this book is a conversation between God and the prophet. And in chapter 2, verse 4, you find a phrase that is repeated three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. This is a theme not just of the New Covenant and of the New Testament. This is a theme of the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. And and so Habakkuk is seeing this downfall going on with God's people, and he's wondering why God is being silent, especially why God is using the Babylonians of all people, a godless people, a heathenistic people, an idolatrous people. God's people are in trouble, but Lord, why in the world are you using the Babylonians to judge us? They're worse than us. And so here are some key doctrines. First of all, the nature of God's judgment. The nature of God's judgment. God does judge, and sometimes he uses people or things that we would not anticipate or expect to bring judgment. You see this all throughout the Old Testament, that there are times in in the life of the people of God when God uses ungodly people to judge the godly, to bring the godly to repentance. That is a principle of Scripture, that God can use ungodly people to judge God people that are supposed to be godly to bring them to repentance and a right relationship with the Lord. Secondly, the true worship of God. The true worship of God is dealt with in this book. And then thirdly, justification by faith, which we've already mentioned. That we are not saved by works. We are not saved by being baptized. We are not saved by doing good deeds. We are not saved by joining a church. We are justified, made right with God, just as if I have never sinned by grace in Christ alone. Salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. And we are justified by faith in what God has said about how we are saved. He first complains that God's not judging, then he complains about how God is judging. And there are five woes in this book, but it ends, chapter 3, with a confident prayer in God's sovereignty. Let me tell you the principle that you can learn from the book of Habakkuk. Give your complaints to God. Tell him what your issues are, your problems are, your concerns. And when you do that, much like in the Psalms, you will find that with those 
confession of those problems and those issues and those things that you do not understand, that God will roll your heart into an awareness and an understanding that he is going to make all things right, and you'll begin to trust that God is in control. What you see is not what's really true. What God says is what's really true. That's the book of Habakkuk. Zephaniah. Zephaniah talks about the coming day of God's wrath. His name means the Lord hides. His genealogy traces back to King Hezekiah. He had the ear of King Josiah, and he prophesied specifically to Judah and to Jerusalem. The parallels for Zephaniah, if you want to read what was going on in the land, as he's talking about this coming day of God's wrath, what was going on in the land is recorded in 2 Kings 21 through 23. 2 Kings chapter 21 through 23, and 2 Chronicles chapters 33 through 35. Those are the parallel chapters that go along with this prophet speaking of the coming wrath of God. In verse 2 of Zephaniah, he says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He tells us that there is a coming day of judgment. The book of Revelation tells us there is a coming day of judgment. The key words in this book are the day of the Lord or that day, or the day, 20 times. And when you see a reference to the day of the Lord, it is almost always speaking of that day when God is going to judge and set things right. He talks about the remnant because in the midst of judgment, God always watches out for the remnant, his people who have stayed faithful to him. That's mentioned four times in this book. And then he talks about desolation seven times. The theme of this book is very simple. Sin will be punished. God does not leave sin unpunished. Either you and I take our sins to Jesus and let him wash them under his blood, or we pay the price for our sins by spending eternity in hell. There's only two options, trusting Christ or rejecting Christ. Sin has to be punished. And Christ took on sin, a sinless man, for sinners so that he could take our punishment that we deserve. To reject Christ, to reject Christ is to say, I'm willing to be punished for my own sins. I am willing, I choose to be punished, to pay the price for my own sins, and you will spend eternity in a place called hell. Judah was going to be judged for abandoning God and worshiping idols. The other nations were going to be judged because of pride and mocking God and threatening the Jews. The outline is simply this, judgment on Judah, judgment on the surrounding nations, and the future restoration of Israel. This book has a serious and somber tone. Uh, if, if you want to read the power of positive thinking books, don't read the prophets. But I will tell you that this day of wrath that is coming is motivated by God's love. Because God loves holiness. And God loves people who are committed to holiness. That's the remnant. But God judges when people reject his love. You see, you're not rejecting a theory. You're rejecting a person, 
a person who has identified himself as love. God is love. And to reject his love is to receive his wrath. That's that book, Zephaniah. Haggai, God will build his temple, is the theme of that book. His name means festive one or feast, which probably means he was born on a feast day, on one of the feast days of Israel. And what he deals with in his book is the neglect of worship and the neglect of working for God. Not working for God and not worshiping God or what he is dealing with as he prophesies to the people. And the key words are house or the Lord's house eight times. Consider five times. The word of the Lord five times and says the Lord 20 times. He basically has five messages in this book. And he's telling the people, you have built your homes, you've established your homes, you live in these nice paneled homes, he says, and you've been building your own home and your own estate and working on your own turf and your own lawn and your own houses and your own furniture while the house of God where you worship is falling into neglect. That is an indictment on the majority of churches in America today. People have no problem spending money on their own homes, on their own needs, on their own furniture, on their own stuff. And you say, you know what? We need to fix up the house of God. This is not where God lives, but this is where we gather to worship God. And you walk in most churches and they look like they hadn't emptied the trash in a month. And they're cluttered and they're cluttered up and they're dirty and they're not clean. And what he's saying is, hey... Pay attention to where you worship me. Pay attention to what it looks like. The weeds need to be cut down. The flowers need to be growing. The shrubs need to be trimmed. The buildings need to be clean. Pay attention to where you worship me. You worry about that in your home. I want you to worry about that in the house where you gather to worship me. And you see, you, if, if I were to say today, you know, we need to raise some money. We need to fix up some rooms. Well, you know, times are tight. But I guarantee you, you've been to Best Buy. You've been to Haverty's. You've been to Turner's Furniture. You've been somewhere this year, and you've gotten something you wanted. See, that's the indictment of God. That we put ourselves, which is the worship of self, above the worship of God and investing in the things of God. That's what... He's accusing the people of God for. So he says, you need to get back to work. The parallel for this book is the book of James. Faith without works is dead. He's emphasizing God's presence in the temple and the people needing to obey God. And so here's the outline. There's an exhortation to rebuild the temple. That's chapter one. The first part of chapter two, the new temple is described. And the last part of the book deals with the messianic kingdom. The Messianic Kingdom. Now we come to Zechariah. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Zechariah is a book talking about God's love for his people. He was probably from a priestly tribe. He had eight visions. And here are the key words. Thus says the Lord. Eighty-nine times. Thus says the Lord, 89 times it says that. And, and then the Lord of hosts, 36 times. This book is about the Lord. There, there's no question. God has spoken. He has not stuttered. God has something to say to his people. And he wrote this 
to restore hope to God's people and to stir their heart. He envisions the first coming of Christ and also the second coming of Christ. There's almost more in this book about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah than any book other than the book of Isaiah, which is 66 chapters long. And so let me just show you here. You've got it in your notes. Messiah's rejection at the first coming is in chapters 9 through 11. Chapters 9 through 11. It should not have surprised the Jewish people. It should not surprise us that Christ was rejected because the pictures of Christ's coming are always two, his first coming and his second coming. The problem is that many of those who interpreted these prophecies saw one coming, that Christ would come in and he would rule and he would reign and he would establish his kingdom on earth, and he will at his second coming, but not at his first one. His rejection was prophesied. His acceptance at his second coming is in chapters 12 through 14, where the rejected king reigns. The rejected king will reign. That's chapters 12 through 14. And it tells us that God has a commitment to his people in both the immediate and the long term. Now, this is not in your notes, and I'm just going to give you a few of them to just kind of whet your appetite a little bit. But let me mention a few of the prophecies that are related to Messiah that are in this book, why this is such a messianic book. First of all, the prophecy that he would rule and reign on a throne, which is found in Revelation chapter 22. The prophecy is in this book that he would ride on a donkey that had never been ridden before into Jerusalem. That's in the book of Zechariah. The prophecy that he would be betrayed and sold out for 30 pieces of silver is in this book. The prophecy that Judas would take the 30 pieces of silver and buy a potter's field is in this book. And the prophecy that Jesus would be pierced with a spear is in this book. This is an incredibly messianic book. And it is a book, if you are witnessing to one of your Jewish friends, this is a great book to take them to because Jesus Christ and the, and the crucifixion of Christ followed along in this pattern. It is all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you have the prophecies of his coming and of his second coming. The outline is very simple. There's a call to repentance. A call to repentance. There are eight visions, four messages, and two burdens. It's a call to repentance in the context of eight visions, four messages, and two burdens that he had. Now we come to the last book of the Old Testament. And I think we've done this in about seven messages. So is everybody out of breath yet? The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, which by the way, Malachi is not the last Old Testament prophet. I've heard people say, you know, Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's not. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet because he was the last one to say, prepare the way for the Lord. So although John the Baptist appears in the New Testament in the 400 years of silence, the next prophet to speak before Messiah actually comes is John the Baptist. Malachi means messenger of God or my messenger. He was a contemporary of Nehemiah. 
He is the last of three prophets that begins his book with the oracle of the word of the Lord, the other two being Nehemiah and Habakkuk. This is a book of rebuke. After only a hundred years of being back in the land, the people have fallen away from God and they are being judged for their sins and for arguing with God. Now, let's just make a contemporary application here. How many of you as parents appreciate it when your kids argue with you? Raise your hands. You, you appreciate it. You love for your kids to argue with you. Hmm. Why is it that we argue with God when he tells us something? Why is it we argue with our Heavenly Father about what he says is best for us, but we don't appreciate it when our children argue with us when we tell them what we think is best for them? You see, we do to God what we would never let our children do to us by showing that kind of disrespect. But we do it to God all the time, and that's exactly what they're doing. In, in fact, if you want to write a, a phrase by the book of Malachi, Malachi is the best picture, I think, of the 21st century church in America. Because the philosophy in the book of Malachi is simply this. What's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? Why can't I worship God like I want to worship God? Why can't I give what I want to give? Why can't I serve the way I want to serve? Why can't I keep the best for myself? Why can't I have it my way? Why can't I deserve a break today? Why can't it be about me? And that is the church 24-7 on television today. And that is the church in America that is getting great crowds and poor congregations. Because people want to go to a place that's all about them. It's not about you. And it's not about me. It's not my church. And it's not your church. It's his church. It's not my word and my opinion. It's his word. And it's not his opinion. These are his truths that he's given us. They were doubting God. They were arguing with God. They were disobeying the laws. They were stealing the tithe. They were applauding divorce for irreconcilable differences. It's a book that speaks volumes to our culture. A culture in which we are losing ground because the church wants God to accommodate himself to us. That's why the confession of the Lordship of Christ is significant because when I confess Jesus as Lord, I can no longer say, but I want it to be this way. Or I want this or I want that because I don't get a vote anymore. I am surrendered to his lordship to do what he says, not what I want. That's the book of Malachi. That's what he tells us. And so uh, he, he predicts the coming of Elijah, chapter 4 and verse 5. Now, there are two ways that you can interpret this prediction of Elijah. One is the coming of John the Baptist, which was a fulfillment in part of Elijah coming again. But most biblical scholars believe that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses that will testify in the book of Revelation of what God has done and is doing. And so he is prophesying into the future beyond us, into the book of Revelation in chapter 11. 
So here's the outline. There were the sins of the priests or the preachers. They doubted God's love. They despised God's name. And they defiled his covenant. They were filled with doubt and despising and defiling. The sins of the people were evil partnerships, questioning God, robbing God, and murmuring and insincerity. This is a very unique book because it is a question and answer book. And God says this, and they say, when did we do that? And God says this, and when did we do that? And God says this, and we didn't do that. When did we do that? And God keeps answering every question that they have because they're murmuring and they're insincere and they've had evil partnerships and they're always questioning what God says. You know, that sin dates all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That sin is birthed in the mind of Satan. For Satan said, has God said? And ladies and gentlemen, any time we start arguing with God, we start cooperating with the devil of hell. It's that simple. When we argue with God over what God says in his word and we ask God to accommodate, really what we're doing is we're partnering up shoulder to shoulder, hugging and walking arm in arm, hand in hand with the devil himself who said, has God really said that? It is a serious book and it has serious ramifications to our day. Uh, One last thing. There are 400 years of silence. So what in the world happened during those 400 years? Did God take a vacation? Did he go to the French Riviera? Did he go to Mars to see if there were any, my favorite, Martians? Did he go to another planet, another solar system? What happened? God was working. God was working. But God's people weren't hearing from any more prophets for 400 years. And yet God had been working. The Apocrypha was written. People ask sometimes, why is the Apocrypha in some Bibles? And the answer to that is very simple. The Apocrypha has no biblical insight, but the Apocrypha was written to give insight into the Greek influence over the Jews and what was happening in Jewish history. During that time, during that time, the local synagogue was established. This is a time of which Josephus, the Jewish historian, is a major source of what was going on in the life of the Jews during the time when the prophets were not speaking. Now, here's what I want to bring us home to, and I want to ask you to turn to the book of Galatians, the book of Galatians, and then I want us to bring this home about these 400 years of silence. Because you got to wonder, if God's been silent for 400 years, has he said anything about those 400 years? And the answer is, yes, he has. And he did it a long time before the 400 years of silence. In fact, he did it in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel. You see, all of this was predicted in Daniel with exact precision. Daniel predicted that the control of Israel would pass from the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. It is very clearly laid out in the book of Daniel. 
hundreds of years before it happened, how times would change and nations and empires would rise and fall. And so Daniel predicted this so that, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, Galatians 4 and verse 4, if you want to know that the one verse that simply explains what was going on biblically up to this point, from Genesis through Malachi, what was going on in the 400 years of silence, this is what it led to. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now, Daniel saw all that was going to happen up to that point in two dreams. First of all was the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and that's found in Daniel chapter 2. He identified four nations. This is going to come up on the screen for you. He identified the four nations that would rule over the nation of Israel. Long before this happened, first of all, the golden head in Daniel represents Babylon's reign. So when you see him referring to the golden head... He's referring to the time when Babylon ruled the world, the known world. Then when you see him mention the silver chest and arms, that represents the Medes and the Persians. And so Babylon was destroyed. The Medes and the Persians came in and took over the Babylonian empire. And that is represented when he talks about the silver chest and arms. When he talks about the bronze belly and thighs, He's talking about the Greeks who would rule over the earth. And we'll look at that in the next message when we talk about the four Gospels and why the four Gospels came and why the fullness of time and why everything worked for perfect timing in God's timing for Jesus to come when he did and why he hasn't, why he hasn't come back and why he came then and not now. We'll talk about that in the next message. So the bronze represents the Greeks who ruled over the earth. The legs and feet of iron, corrupted with clay, portray the powerful Roman Empire that was ultimately destroyed. And so there you have in one book the four kingdoms that would reign and rule during the time of the prophets until the time of Christ and the time of the first century church, and the second century church, and the third century church. And then when Rome collapsed, there was never again and has not been since an empire that has ruled the world. It broke up into individual nations, and we still have individual nations. There have been empires that have come on the scene, like the Soviet Empire that took over nations but then dissolved, the, the German Empire that Hitler tried to build but was then realigned into nations. And there, there have been times when other nations have ruled other nations, but there's never been a time when there's been one world empire until... Antichrist comes on the scene. And that's Daniel's vision and dream in chapter 7. When Antichrist arises, according to chapter 7 and verse 25, Daniel has a dream of a little horn or a king that grows out of all of this who will be what we know as Antichrist. He will arrogantly defy God. He will persecute the saints 
And Daniel even predicts that he will reign and rule for three and a half years before he reveals his true identity. And then all hell breaks loose in the world. It is all predicted thousands of years ago. The kingdoms that would rise and fall before there was ever any knowledge of any Greeks that could build an empire, before there was any knowledge of any Romans that could build an empire. Daniel said this is going to come. And when that happens, when Rome falls, Daniel predicted when Rome falls, there will not be another empire to rule over the world until Antichrist comes and establishes a one world government. And he will reign and rule and he will kill and destroy and he will build his own temple and sit on his own throne and defy everything that is of God. He will do it. Jesus says, that day's coming. When did he say it was coming? He said it would come as it was in the days of Noah. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, what were the days of Noah like? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were going to their jobs, and they were acting as if they had no accountability to God, and God sent judgment. The book of Thessalonians says that day will be like this. It will be like a thief in the night. It's just going to come quickly and suddenly. Before you could blink your eyes, it will happen that Christ will come back. Jesus said it like this. There are going to be two lying in bed. One will be taken and the other left. There are going to be two working in the field. One will be taken and the other left. It will happen instantaneously. It will happen in a breath, in a second, in a blink. It will happen and Jesus will come back. And the Antichrist will ascend and rule. Now let me ask you a question. Which side do you want to be on? Which side do you want to be on? Because if Jesus can come at any moment, if he can come and we'll be asleep, it'll be like a thief in the night. No thief announces their coming. Thieves don't leave signs on your door. We'll be by at 3.15 this afternoon. They don't announce their coming. They just come. They show up unexpectedly. So I want to ask you a question. If it could happen that quickly... Are you ready for it? Are, are you ready to either meet Jesus or live in a world where you have to have a mark of a beast and where you have to worship Antichrist and if you do not worship him, he will kill you? That's the choice. It's been the choice for over 2,000 years. You say, well, Jesus hadn't come back up to, his, up to this point, but it doesn't mean he's not coming. It just means he's delayed it. And he may have delayed it so that you could come to saving faith in him. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.